Blog Talk Radio. Good afternoon. It is three o'clock on a sultry Florida afternoon. Um, <clears throat> but the uh, end of summer is in sight, and eventually uh, the heat will break. And we will go into the dry season, and hopefully it'll be uh, a little more wet than our wet season, which was a hot and dry July, and uh, a little more rain here in August, but still uh, almost drought conditions. The uh, global change in temperature and the global climate change are being actively denied which has much to do with our um, our uh, broadcast this afternoon. Um, uh, not happening, but for anybody with eyes and ears and a mind that thinks and follows the weather and the statistics being reported uh, is coming apace. Uh, we are in real trouble. Uh, Louisiana is... I hope not still completely underwater. How many hundreds or thousands of homes were damaged or destroyed by another weather event, which was called the event, the, the rain of a thousand years. Uh, we're having storms uh, that wouldn't have happened in a hundred years, and now that storms that happen uh, wouldn't have happened in a thousand years. And, of course, the wish fulfillment is it won't happen for another thousand years but one after another after another, all over the world, uh, we are being uh, attacked by Mother Nature. But anyway, Dr. Simon is here, and that's me, and the show is Stories We Live By. And today I want to talk about a novel, a really good story that I hope to promote on this show and get everybody to read because it has very much to do with the themes that I've been talking about for the last six months or a year uh, in, in which um, I talk about uh, what I feel are the dangers confronting our society uh, and the world and uh, more, more uh, to the point, my own children and especially my grandchildren uh, and an anxiety shared by uh, most everybody I know when we start to talk about it until the conversation is shut down because it is too frightening and unpleasant and overwhelming uh, in terms of what we should do about the politics uh, in the world now and the weather and, and the misery that comes to us through our television set on a daily basis uh, that we never dreamed we would see. The novel is called Cloud Atlas. Uh, it came out in 2004, I believe. Uh, and tonight I'm going to watch the movie. I read this book. It's over 500 pages. And I read it in a day and a half, two days. I mean, to me, that's unbelievable. But once I got hooked by it, uh, not only the way the story is structured, but its contents, because David Mitchell, the author, sees uh, the world the way I do, and suffers the same anxieties as I do. And he wrote a book that I wouldn't be able to write 
Um, and I do this show for the same reason I think he wrote the book. Uh, uh, it's partly personal, partly uh, um, to make – well, he makes. I hope he made some real money on this. Probably, I know he would have made money on the movie. He was very much involved in the making of the movie, uh, which leads me to believe I will enjoy the movie rather than see it uh, just, you know, as a poor ripoff of special effects uh, in relation to the book. But um, he raises the same alarms and and ends with the same hopes that I do that it shouldn't be too late for us to uh, change our wicked ways and uh, speak out loudly. And he speaks out loudly in this as I try to speak out when I do these shows. Um, And hopefully somebody hears it and speaks out again. And we begin to turn the tide of the direction that we're going. And what is that direction? Well, the book is really fascinatingly structured, uh, It is really six novellas, five of which are presented in a half at a time. So it's five novellas leading up to a six that's only presented once. And then it's like one, two, three, four, five, six. And then we have five, four, three, two, one. In other words, a repetition and an ending of the original novel, uh, in, in a kind of a palindrome. Uh, it's balanced. Number one first, two, three, four, five, six appears once, and then we finish up the story of five, finish up the story of four, three, two, and one. And there's a lot of philosophy buried in this, and each story has a hero and a villain, um, and uh, the villain sometimes wins, and the hero sometimes wins. But the overlying philosophy that we are in deep trouble keeps happening, no matter whether the hero wins and, and does the right thing, and uh, giving us hope that maybe uh, what they've done will slow the progress of human beings uh, living in a near-barbarous state, Uh, which appears in the future in six. Number one is about a notary. Uh, The the locale of the story is the Far East, New New, uh, Zealand, Australia, China, uh, and other places. It really doesn't matter, uh, the the actual places. Um, But he is an American who's traveling around the world, and he keeps a journal, the the, uh, notary in the first story. And uh, what, what he does is save a, uh, a man, a black man, uh, from a tribe that's being driven to extinction by slave traders and by another tribe um, that is warlike. And this is a rather peaceful tribe, uh, and he saves one individual, and I won't talk about but it goes really into the slavery and the justification, the psychology of the slave trader who sees uh, the money he makes as not important, but he is bringing um, religion, he is bringing civilization, he is bringing all the good things that the white race has produced to these savages, and therefore it justifies 
the what the beatings, the torture, the mutilation, the horror of the slavery. Um, these slaves, uh, there's an interesting section uh, where uh, David Ewing, the, the, the notary, asks um, uh, the people who are running a, a, a church built on slavery, um, uh, are these people willing to work? Do they want to work? Oh, yes, they're completely uh, working on their own, although we have to punish them. And the punishments, of course, are horrendous and involve whipping and torture. And, uh, but this is not seen. And this is what's so wonderful about human beings, their capacity to morally justify, particularly uh, if we bring in a religion that says uh, that a God loves our tribe the best. Uh, God, is a, God had a white son, and uh, we're all white. And um, this can be done with any color, and I'm sure it is. But the, in this particular story, um, he, he is concerned, Mitchell, the author, um, with the uh, slavery uh, of whites over blacks and the tribalism that justifies it by a religion that says we are really saving these individual souls and doing good for them by enslaving them, by torturing them. Uh, the most dangerous words in the world, a philosopher once said, uh, is, I know what's good for you, and I'm doing this to you for your own good. It's one of the really good mechanisms to justify uh, the beating of children, the beating and destroying of people. Well, we're doing this for your own good. Uh, the, the, the philosopher, uh, Robert, uh, what's Robert's name? He was a wonderful philosopher. Harvard philosopher uh, Robert Nozick Robert Nozick who was at Harvard um, and those are dangerous words I know what is good for you now if you're loved by those who think they know what is good for you that's one thing but if uh, it's a profit they're making uh, that's another thing and that becomes a horror and so much of human history is built on horror the second uh, novel let or novella is uh, about a composer, and I won't go into his story uh, particularly, and I don't want to ruin the book for anybody, but he ultimately writes a sextet, a piece of music uh, called Cloud Atlas, and I may have to reread the book or write away to Mitchell why that particular composition became the title of the book, but the title of the book is based on a... a uh, piece of music, which ultimately justifies the life of the composer. Um, if there's anything I believe that can save us, is if everybody uh, recognizes their individuality as a creative force in the world. And the people I admire in the most, uh, at the top of the list, are people who write music uh, or create dance or paint. But music to me, because uh, on a personal level, when I was at the darkest time of my adolescence and felt really alone and frightened and upset and could not express, put into words, or find anybody to listen to how I felt, 
I came up one night and listened uh, on uh, WQXR. I had a show at between 8 and 9 called Symphony Hall. And the piece of music that was on, and I had to wait till the end to find out what it was so I could run out and buy it, was Rachmaninoff's Second Symphony. And Rachmaninoff, like so many composers, felt unloved. Uh, he felt uh, 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 he was, these were his babies that he produced. He didn't take well to criticism. And some of the criticism uh, uh, by critics who couldn't put pen to paper and produce anything as beautiful or, or as wonderful or as long-lasting as Rachmaninoff did, uh, he suffered for his art. But that music... Uh, made me not alone. Uh, I had a friend who has died recently, taught with me for many years uh, in, in the City University, Arnold Rosner, and I just came across uh, a new album of his. He, too, was angry and bitter over the fact that he could spend a year writing a piece of music and no one would hear it. Uh, it was difficult to get it published because there really is no market for a piece of music, a symphony or a concerto that lasts a half an hour or an hour. Uh, we don't live in a time where we could sit still and uh, let that music come to us and make us aware of our own feelings so that they can be expressed and we can feel uh, that we're part of something creative and beautiful rather than destructive and ugly. And uh, two of the pieces of, uh, that Rosner wrote, I think, are absolute masterpieces. I think they're just incredibly beautiful uh, pieces of music. Uh, the third uh, of the, and I may be reversing this, but it doesn't matter, is an elderly publisher. Uh, and what happens to him uh, when he ends up by mistake uh, thinking he was going into a hotel and uh, it ends up being a nursing home, and he now becomes a prisoner of the nursing home. And this one, uh, again, I felt very close to, uh, and his struggles to get out of the nursing home. Um, and and because uh, I work in a nursing home, I've worked in several of them. And as one of my patients has said, we're the throwaways. And if you don't have and you're in a nursing home, and you don't have an advocate, and you don't have some mobility, uh, life becomes horrendous. You are a bother. The few saints that work in these nursing homes uh, uh, who uh, will reach out to you and provide you real comfort are the few. Otherwise, you become uh, uh, a pain. Uh, you're somebody who produces feces that has to be cleaned by somebody else uh, who is making little money. And these factories, uh, these, these uh, waiting rooms of God uh, are a place of really horror. And it describes the horror of what happens to an individual who, who could leave but is now uh, demeaned and controlled by the forces and the people who run this nursing home for profit. Because these things, like so many other co corporations in the world, uh, are supposedly for our good, and they supposedly provide a service for our needs, but ultimately they're profit-making, and uh, the people who gain the most 
are the corporate people at the top uh, who are in, in this blind search for incredible wealth. And one of the things I always have difficulty uh, understanding is how much is enough when somebody has more money than they or their children and their children's children could ever spend. Why isn't it enough? And the answer, of course, is as a psychologist, uh, it's driven behavior by something deep inside that won't be recognized. And for me, so much of the, well, let me hold on. Yeah, I'll go do it now. So much of the nightmare of late-stage capitalism. This is not just capitalism we're anymore. This is a capitalism that eats, its, eats the world and eats itself. So much of this is you can't have enough because on the positive side, if you're a millionaire, you can't be as proud of yourself as if you were a billionaire. And what people will not anytime look inside at what their greatest fears are, they re imagine and relive those fears they project them onto the outside world and i have talked about that many times in many of my shows so that the wealth becomes a defense mechanism against dying against feeling the shame of being a nobody and i'm always uh, upset and amazed that the single main definition of being a successful human being in late stage capitalistic world is to be uh, uh, wealthy. You're a success based upon the size of your wallet and your portfolio. And of course, the number of toys that you can own. The value and quality of toys. And I'm not against toys. Uh, I have one toy in front of me, my computer, and I'm on a phone, which is another toy, and I find these things necessary. But they so easily become things that we collect to define ourselves as successful and avoid the shame of not being successful. And so much of what I see going on in our election now, the individuals who are so angry and who respond uh, to the demagoguery of Donald Trump uh, and others in the world who tell them uh, the thing has been rigged against you, uh, yeah, it's been rigged against you. You're a victim. On the other hand, uh, what many people want is not food, not the things that make life uh, uh, lived and are necessary, but are the toys that one sees, the wealth that one sees on television uh, that defines the happy, successful individual. I was just watching a golf game, and there was, there's an ad I've seen once before. A very handsome couple are sitting in a car, uh, a sports car, expensive sports car. I have nothing against expensive sports cars. And the woman turns with her face to the husband or the boyfriend, whoever he is, and says, again? And one ah, imagines the sexual satisfaction that's about to take place. And all of a sudden, the car roars off and goes up a mountain to see a sunset and comes back down again. Again? Ah, the real satisfaction in life is not even lovemaking. It's driving a Porsche Boxster or an, uh, a, a, I think it's a BMW Boxster up a mountain uh, uh, because it can be done. Nothing wrong with it. 
What becomes wrong is when the individual can't see the emptiness they might be feeling inside and the pain and the hunger all around uh, that something has to be done about but which can be ignored with the delusion that as long as I'm in my fancy house, as long as I have my toys, uh, it's not my responsibility to do anything uh, to help anybody else, no matter where they are. The next story is about a reporter, a sharp woman, and I know that the, the uh, reporter is played in the movie by Halle Berry, uh, and that's another reason alone just to watch this movie, because I think she's not only a terrific actress, but she is a gorgeous person. Anyway, uh, it, the story revolves around the building of a new type of uh, nuclear power facility based upon hydrogen that people within the corporation know uh, is, is flawed and ultimately can blow up and probably will blow up, causing millions of deaths and billions of dollars in damage. And uh, Mitchell makes clear that the, uh, people in, there are people in the Pentagon who are, begin planning for this so that they can have a model of what to do in an actual nuclear war. And I won't go through what happens to the reporter and the story and the people who try to get this story out and what the corporation does. I'll leave to your imagination until you read this fine book. And a lot of these stories become like the perils of Pauline. They, they're action stories. They're really they're terrific about how the action of the story um, uh, uh, is, is uh, uh, exciting and, and uh, you become nervous or at least I did, and tense for will the heroine or the hero escape? Will the story come out? Um, uh, will the, the project of these uh, deficient uh, and dangerous uh, facilities uh, be shut down? And I won't tell you what happens. I'd leave it to you uh, to read the story uh, and to be excited by it and to bite your fingernails as you read it, but to absorb the underlying message, which is so critical, is that these corporations, uh, uh, some of them, not all of them, uh, in order for power and money, uh, will do anything. But again, what drives an individual to destroy our air and our water, knowingly, when his own children and grandchildren have to drink that water and breathe that air. Uh, Mitchell, the author, suggests it's just denial. But again, as a psychologist, I think something deeper is at work that is part of the danger that Freud and the psychoanalysts and other psychologists have told us about, our capacity to deny what's going on because our activity protects us from examining some deep shame, some deep personal pain that is too difficult for us to look at and thereby solve without these machinations and these extreme forms of behavior that ultimately consume us and everybody around us. Okay. The next story is now the next two stories are really science fiction. And it's my favorite story, 
and in the future, it, it's, it's an unnamed future, uh, it deals with what's called a fabricant. This hasn't happened yet. It's starting to happen. I have no doubt that it's in the planning uh, at, by scientists who would think this is a good thing to do. And it has to do with the cloning of human beings to do very specific jobs but have no idea of the larger world that they're living in and no idea of what, who created them and why they were created, which really is for the profit and the power of the corporation. And in fact, the world is now dominated in this future by companies that are called the corpocracy. They are a dictatorship of corporate uh, uh, interlocking corporations, and they produce beings that are uh, the slaves of society. Uh, and this, for anybody who has ever read Brave New World by Aldous Huxley, it's uh, Brave New World Redo. Uh, and uh, if you have not read Brave New World, as if you have not read uh, 1984 by George Orwell, shame on you. But in Brave New World, uh, it's in the, 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 what, what Huxley was working with there was the idea of conditioning, that uh, individuals from birth on can be conditioned uh, to be happy in a place, to be uh, uh, a, a garbage man or a doorman and have no ambition because they're incapable of imagining, uh, uh, imagining themselves being somewhere in a more creative, more self-fulfilling uh, place. And um, here, it's not merely that these people, these beings, these fabricants, as they're called, are conditioned, but they're literally created. And again, I won't talk about the story uh, and what happens to this particular female uh, uh, fabricant who works in a kind of future um, uh, a future uh, burger place uh, with ha has arches. <laughs> it's called Papa Songs, but it's really uh, a, a large McDonald's uh, and, and represents the uh, food of the future and uh, uh, what, uh, what emerges as you find out what the food actually is. And this is science fiction. But what I find so brilliant uh, about his fiction here is that this is really starting. This is really beginning to go on. The idea of cloning, the idea of creating beings, uh, whatever they are, to service our needs and not recognize uh, what they actually are. Um, if you ever can come across what I considered one of the best novels I've ever read, and that's Never Let Me Go, and it's with a, a Japanese author, Oh, Hiroshi, I forget. You know what? Oh, I should have written this down before. Uh, in my next broadcast, if I remember, I'll give you the name. But you could look it up in Amazon or, or uh, 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 Nook uh, or, or Barnes & Noble and never let me go. And it is about the, the cloning of individuals, human individuals, for experimental parts, uh, for, for pieces. Uh, for people to get replacement parts. And um, one can almost see it happening. 
at the point at which corporations have the power to simply define all aspects of reality. And ultimately, that's what could happen. But as we go through the story of the fabricant, uh, a, a created being who is fully human uh, and fully con- becomes fully conscious of herself uh, and turns out to be uh, an insightful uh, and, and uh, avid scholar, becomes very scholarly, um, what we begin to see is that as these corporations become more powerful, the world becomes more and more a wasteland, that the air and the water, uh, uh, it's a future uh, with the, the worst nightmares or about the worst nightmares of our um, uh, climate change and what might happen uh, as the deserts in Africa continue to expand, as the air becomes filthier and more toxic and the water uh, becomes less and less available and more poisonous. Nobody knows about this because uh, as long as you have enough money and as long as you can enjoy Papa Song's hamburgers and you, have, you live in, in some kind of moderate wealth, uh, the misery of those who live in the slums, the growing slums, uh, the health problems are invisible and there's nothing to be done about them. Again, it's human nature, uh, uh, so to speak, or it's, uh, uh, or it's, they brought it on themselves. Uh, and again, to a degree, we do all in our choices, bring things on ourselves. Uh, although, uh, again, at the same time, we can and are and easily be victims. The final story which is in singular form, it's not split in half, so we know what will happen, is the world is basically a place where people can no longer read or write. Uh, They scrounge a living from the earth. He made up, by the way, he uses, uh, Mitchell, this is brilliant, he uses literally different language structure to write each one of these stories. And uh, the last one takes some getting used to because it's a kind of a dialect that he writes about, uh, kind of a, an, uh, a bastardized version of Australian dialect. And it, it's, it's quite, quite uh, uh, difficult to read at points, but really quite exciting. And it's a struggle for survival uh, against uh, a tribe of savages uh, who enslave others and beat them and destroy them, uh, who ride around on horseback uh, and, and uh, take, literally taking over the world. And you understand at the point at which these um, angry, destructive uh, barbarians uh, take over, there will be no mankind. And the book ends uh, with an ambiguous future for civilization and for humanity. And again, this is sort of science fiction, but look in the Middle East, look at what's happening with ISIS, the enslavement of people, uh, the rape of women, little girls becoming sex slaves, barbarism of people's heads being cut off, 
uh, all being uh, uh, dominated by a need for profit and justified and justified by a religious fanaticism that grows <clears throat> with the, the anything that that civilization when civilization fails and people are hungry and people are desperate uh, and can believe the 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 uh, these prophets of death that this is what God wants and it's inevitable. I won't tell you how it all ends. Um, I'm not giving away the story, but the message of the story is very clear. And I resonate deeply with the message. That is, we're in trouble. We're in trouble now. And if we continue going in the direction we're going, the trouble will be worse. Um, What do we do? What do we do? Uh, I'm not sure. I mean, I understand that to me, again, the way out is a good educational system that helps children grow up uh, to become people who are part of a society, but are part of a society that they wish to make moral, that is not vicious, uh, that has an eye towards uh, spreading wealth rather than collecting it uh, and, and hoarding it, and ultimately who are creative, musicians who compose and dancers who dance and scientists uh, who study and writers who write. Uh, to me, the beautiful people are people who create. To me, the top of the pyramid are the artists. This is my value system. Uh, a person who writes a symphony uh, or, writes, uh, or does a painting that when we look at, we see the world anew and differently. Um, uh, if God lives anywhere, and I'm not big on God being anywhere, it's in a concert hall. It's in an art museum. Uh, it's it's in, in, in any place that there's beauty and creativity uh, that is a shareable by all. Uh, let me end. I wanted to end with some of the words uh, and philosophy of hope that uh, Mitchell ends with. Although, interestingly, the person who speaks this is the first person who uh, lives in 1831 and not somebody who uh, lives in the future. So as this individual says these words, uh, they're drowned out. In fact, all the good deeds done by our heroes are drowned out by subsequent events, uh, which take us into the end state of uh, a possibility of a humanity that dies completely on a wasted planet. Um, He writes, the the, uh, notary, the first character. My recent adventures have made me quite the philosopher, especially at night, when I hear naught but the stream grinding boulders into pebbles, though through an unhurried eternity. My thoughts flow thus. Scholars discern motions in history and formulate these motions into rules that govern the rises and falls of civilizations. My belief runs contrary, however, to wit, 
History admits no rules, only outcomes. What precipitates outcomes? Vicious acts and virtuous acts. What precipitates acts? Belief. Belief is both prize and battlefield within the mind and the mind's mirror, the world. If we believe humanity is a ladder of tribes, a coliseum of confrontation, exploitation, and bestiality, such a humanity is surely brought into being. And history's evildoers, I won't give you the names of the bad guys in the book, but he lists them here, shall prevail. You and I, the money, the privilege, the fortunate, shall not fare so badly in this world, provided our luck holds. What of it? What of it if our consciences itch? Why undermine the dominance of our race, our gunships, our heritage, and our legacy? Why fight the natural, in quotes, a Weasley word, order of things? Why, because of this, one fine day a purely predatory world shall consume itself? Yes, the devil shall take the hindmost until the foremost is the hindmost. In an individual, selfishness uglifies the soul. For the human species, selfishness is extinction. Is this do the doom written within our nature? If we believe that humanity may transcend tooth and claw, if we believe divers races and creeds can share this world as peaceably as the orphans share their candlenut tree, if we believe leaders must be just, violence muzzled, power accountable, and the riches of the earth and its oceans shared equitably, such a world will come to pass. I am not deceived. It is the hardest of worlds to make real. Torturous advances won over generations can be lost by a single stroke of a myopic president's pen or a vainglorious general's sword. Does that man know how to write? Is that as lovely and creative as our words can be made? Well, Nobody has called in. I don't expect it to. I, I surprise people when I when I uh, when I uh, do my show. Of course, I don't do it every week, and I don't do it every time. Uh, tonight, I want to watch a movie. I want to partake of a really good bottle of wine I have, and I wouldn't be able to do a show this evening. Uh, I'll be away next few weeks. Going to go out west. And see the national parks. Hopefully, they'll still be there for the next generation to see. Uh, but articles I've been reading in the paper suggest that the the corporations want to lease these lands and plunder them for their uh, potential wealth, so that uh, what has been called the best thing our country's ever produced, our democracy produced, the national parks don't have to be there. Uh, anyway. Uh, I'll be gone for a while, and I won't do a show for a while, and that'll be okay, too. So, uh, this is Dr. Simon, and I wish you all well and health and real wealth. And uh, I'm going to sign off now. I will sit for a few seconds, a minute or two, to see whether or not. Uh, and I'm really annoyed before I start my show, I post to my network, Twitter, Facebook, and Blog Talk Radio, and this is the second time 
the carrier for Facebook didn't send the show, so I'm going to have to go online and tell everybody about it and uh, see what happens. Okay. Goodbye.